Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Colonel Grant Newsham, a retired U.S. Marine who served in the Indo-Pacific for decades, including in intelligence and liaison roles, and was instrumental in establishing Japan's amphibious force as a U.S. Foreign Service officer. He covered a number of regions, including East and South Asia, and specialized in insurgency, counterinsurgency, and commercial matters. Uh, an attorney, he lived in Tokyo for 20 plus years working for an investment bank and in the high-tech industry. His new book from Regnery is When China Attacks, A Warning to America. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Colonel Newsham. I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much. Thank you for uh, coming on. And you know, w- let's get right into it. Your book, it's 20 chapters, so we won't cover uh, everything, but I very much uh, enjoyed When China uh, Attacks. I'm not uh, you know, some might say I'm not extremely hawkish on China, but neither am I someone who says there's no danger uh, from China. And I found I found myself nodding in agreement many times as I went through your uh, book more often than not. And we do seem at the cusp of a new world uh, order. You know, they call it multipolarity, and it seems to be accelerating. And maybe to start to get your thoughts, we're seeing all this integration now between the non-Western world and all these different meetings. You know, Bashar al-Assad of Syria was in Moscow recently. China brokering peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, the president of Iran set to visit Saudi's uh, king, Xi Jinping, as we speak, in Moscow with Putin. And so it seems like uh, American unipolarity is, uh, you know, almost over. Do, do you have any thoughts, uh, you know, big picture on, on these shifts uh, on the grand chessboard? Well, the the bad guys don't seem to be afraid of anybody, or not very much. And when I say bad guys, I, I do mean these uh, countries that are regimes uh, that are basically charitably described as illiberal. You know, these are places where you can get tossed into prison for the, the wrong thoughts, saying the wrong things. Uh, complete absence of individual liberties and the human rights and consensual government of the sort that we're used to. Uh, Really nothing more than thugocracies. Uh, And it's really nothing new. You know, we've seen these kind of regimes before. Uh, They have uh, come along and then coalesced and uh, caused a lot of uh, harm, caused a lot of trouble. And eventually they fade away, uh, usually with a whole lot of heartache and bloodshed. And this is what we're seeing now as I see it. Uh, So I say it's not anything unprecedented, but when these kinds of regimes uh, sort of think they've got an opening, think they've got an opportunity, when they smell weakness, that we seem to have troubles with them. And there's sometimes a lack of confidence on the, let's say, the the Western, not the Western or the, the free nations, and that's a better way to put it. And the peoples, the nations that don't want to be dominated by these kinds of people, and it's really a dynamic that uh, we've seen before. You've read about it, seen it, heard it. Uh, it's the dynamic of the playground almost, where you have a you know a bully or a couple of bullies who decide that there's nothing to stop them and they're going to take over, and they like to do it. Um, really, all you have to do with China is listen to what they say. I think uh, Putin's Russia speaks for itself. Uh, Iran, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and look at those. You know, why are there no, they don't have an illegal immigrant problem. Uh, just the nature of these regimes is pretty clear. I say it, it is something we've seen. Uh, it's not new in history. The ancient Greeks probably wrote plays about this sort of stuff. They'd have known all about it. Uh, just we're the ones living through it. And, you know, maybe to start uh, at home here in America, you open your book uh, with an example that really hit home 
for me, it's uh, you know, fictional scenario in a kitchen in America, a father uh, and a mother and a who have a son and a daughter. And uh it hits home for me because I'm a former teacher and and professor and the daughter becomes uh, you know you're, you're touching on the issue of cultural marxism what we're seeing in the west now this cultural marxism this wokeism this cancel culture uh and and i used to teach here at the top school in mexico and i can tell you even here in mexico by far 90 percent or, or more of the students were left-wing progressive uh marxist outright basically and so it, it, it was a struggle for me as a conservative you know to to work in academia in mexico let alone you know in the u.s and and you know the daughter of this father in your scenario is has bought you know hook line and sinker this this ideology and it's just kind of sad to see w where things are going in the united states and so if you want to comment on you know uh th this cultural these cultural issues in america that we're facing now uh, in academia and, and and so on a quick shout out to our sponsors which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description i've tried privacy phones in the past such as silent circles black phone which turned out to be a dud the best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell de-googled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. You know, what I, and what I tried to get across in the book, and it may surprise some readers, is that it's not a techno thriller. Um, you see that actually the, the military part of it uh, is included, but it is not the main part. It's an important part, but it isn't the only thing. And it really is the psychological assault uh, on us, uh, on free people, that it's insidious and it's often hard to hard to recognize. Uh, and that's where we face as much danger as we do from a so-called kinetic, from a military attack. And that's say, what I was trying to get across. And if you are trying to uh, conduct warfare by other means, now supp suppose that you say you don't want to have to attack because that's bloody and the other side might fight back. But if you can subvert, if you can get the other side to think the way you want them to think, and that will cause them to do the things that you want them to think. And they will actually think what they're doing is perfectly normal. Uh, and it's a good thing. And one good way to get uh, influence is to use the schools. Uh, you know, and that's just an, an obvious one. And the younger you can start, the better. 
you know, one sort of example of this one could cite is the, you know, we've heard of the Confucius Institutes, where uh, the Chinese government has set up ostensibly uh, Chinese language instruction uh, schools, institutes on college campuses. Um, the U.S. government has cracked down on this, this sort of thing. Um, and the numbers of the Confucius Institutes are greatly reduced, although they're coming back by different names. But what there's also something called Confucius classrooms, where children are introduced, young children, you know, are introduced to, uh, you know, simple Chinese language, songs, etc., you know, pandas and the like. And you think about that, and you, if you can get a generation or two of children to grow up with this idea that China is an unthreatening place, you know, the thing they associate with it are you know, nice songs and pandas. Uh, that that's actually a good way to shape things, to get started. But then if, once you get the older uh, classes, if you can um, uh, insinuate your ideas, they, you know, capitalism is bad, you know, communism, socialism is good, uh, that you will essentially effectively shape your enemy's thinking to the point he is either unable to resist or can't resist very well. Uh, and it, at that point, you've pretty much got your your enemy. But it, it is, a, say, it's um, in some ways a nonviolent. It's not always nonviolent, but it's a sort of it's a psychological uh, assault uh, that uh, that we're seeing. And everybody thinks they're too smart to to be brought to be sort of hooked in uh, with it. Uh, but it's say that it's important to make that distinction between you know so-called kinetic and you know military moves and actually mental moves, psychological moves, political moves, uh, fighting on, you know, economic fronts, financial fronts. Uh, so there's other ways to bring your enemy down than just to try and roll in the military. Um, but as you say, there is a pernicious aspect to this. Uh, and, you know, maybe one of the, and I, one of the sort of surprising things is that um, it's been pretty hard to find a conservative professor on college campuses for a good long while. I remember hearing this almost 40 years ago when it was an issue, and it's not gotten any better. And despite this, it's amazing just how many people do still love the United States. Um, but it is a way to, to weaken a country and you know, really um, undermine its uh, sort of the pillars of these societies and a free society. Uh, so it is a, a dangerous thing, partly because it's just so hard to recognize. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, your book has 20 chapters. We're just going to scratch uh, the surface. And that's one of the strong points as well as you, you talk about the unrestricted warfare, non-kinetic, you know, cyber, financial, uh, cultural, um, you know, NGOs, IGOs and uh, much more. And then, I, you know, I, I would just add I was uh, here in Mexico, Walmart last week looking at the kids toy section for, for one of my kids and they were selling um mickey mouse a mickey mouse puzzle i took a photo of it that had the rainbow and it was saying lgbt for kids and my point here is i know you don't really get into that in the book but it, it has to do, to do with what we were just discussing how in the multipolar world you know i lived in kazakhstan and mongolia you know former soviet union kazakhstan they don't have this you know china doesn't have lgbt puzzles for their chinese kids or or, or russia so that kind of tells you something why is it in the west and i do do see this as some form of warfare uh as well because uh that's going to hinder us on many uh fronts and something else to consider in the 90s i've heard this before you mentioned it in your book you know especially the clinton administration uh, how some of what we see in china is uh 
of our own making. You know, under the Clinton administration, there was this transfer of technology, uh, basically selling out a lot of, of the U.S. And then, uh, you know, your further thoughts on how um, the American administrations and, and businesses kind of helped build build up China. Oh my goodness, that's been one that's almost a historic uh, example of a country um, building up the country that wants to destroy it. Uh, and I can't think of too many examples of it. Uh, although uh, 1930s Germany did get plenty of support from companies like Ford and uh, IBM, etc. But this has just been out of control. And it I would note it actually started before the Clintons. You have to give the so the Bush administrations plenty of uh, credit for this. Uh, and really what what it was was like a giant science project where the idea was, well, if we uh, help the Chinese economy grow, uh, it will gradually liberalize as China becomes more prosperous. People in this so-called middle class will demand uh, political rights from the government, and it's just inevitable that that's what's going to happen. Uh, but also there was an aspect of Americans and Westerners going insane at the idea of selling one of something to every Chinese person. Uh, and they've been doing this for centuries. Uh, so this is actually nothing new, but it was our, our CEO class, that business class, uh, that figured, well, if we move our businesses to China, we don't have to deal with the labor unions. We don't have to uh, pay people very much because they'll work for almost nothing. Uh, we make it there and we bring it back and sell it in America. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and that's why you you see these just you know parts of major American cities and even not so major American cities where it it looks like a you know a bomb has hit them. And what were used to be were nice neighborhoods, you know, with decent houses where people worked and you know they grew up and had kids and. You know, uh, you did that for generations, and you could have a decent enough life, uh, even without a so-called college degree. And this is so much of this is gone. I mean, go into these neighborhoods and see for yourself. And you know, I like architecture, the old stuff, and you see very nice houses. What well, in their day uh, were nice houses, and and they weren't for rich people, uh, but there were guys who could have a decent living and women too. And it's so much of it is gone. And it's been replaced by good goodness, drug out of zombies, you know, crime out of control, etc. But this is all it all so much of this shifted to China. And the idea was, you know, well, uh, we'll get a little bit more return on investment. Um, you know, we'll you know, it shows we're thinking outside the box, you know, outsourcing, and uh, it's a more efficient way of a, you know, running an economy, doing business. And it really was this, uh, say, this know-it-all business class that did it, egged on by our financial class, uh, which got a cut of it all. And the lawyers didn't mind as well. They got a cut. And it it moved. And it started, uh, I think, one, uh, you can choose your, your point. I was, some would say in the 80s, I would, I would start in the 80s. But it really was, it seemed like after Tiananmen Square in 1989, uh, that it just went all out. And, you know, I mentioned the book uh, to a little bit that I used to work for a company called Motorola. Um, which used to be really famous. It was one of America's, I'd say, top three country companies in its day. And after Tiananmen Square, uh, Motorola decided that it was going to get into the China market and sell one of everything to you know, every person in China. Um, so they effectively became the anchor tenant for this rush of Western business to China. 
and they had the approval and the blessing of the American administrations. And what Motorola did is they went to China, did everything the Communist Party wanted them to do. They handed over a lot of technology to get in, set up factories, gave good jobs to a lot of Chinese people. And the idea was that, well, the Chinese would be so happy we're here that you know they'll um, it just go from strength to strength. They'll buy our stuff. Uh, we'll just get bigger and bigger in China. And we'll have more and more opportunity. And what they really did was just build up their competition. Uh, what they didn't give away, the technology was, of course, stolen in other ways. Uh, and within I don't know, five, six years, you had companies building stuff Motorola made was uh, good enough and it was a lot cheaper. And you have suddenly you had competitors. Uh, and Motorola basically doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the chunk of what's left of it is owned by Lenovo. The Chinese company it has a little bit of Motorola's left, but it's a once great company that's gone. And all of those uh, people who had worked for Motorola for generations uh, in, you know, Schaumburg and other parts of the U.S., well, they they're somewhere else. And once it's really been committing suicide in some respects, what Americans have have done business wise, uh, but also China has used this uh, sort of influx of uh, of investment money to build up its own economy and also to build up its military. Uh, so we uh, really have blown it uh, on in this regard, in this area. And the uh, science experiment, I would say that by the early 2000s, it was obvious it had failed. Um, but people stuck with it and they're still sticking with it. Uh, there's few people are waking up and there is a sense that, well, maybe it isn't good to invest in a place where the the government wants to put you out of business and replace you with their companies uh, that you, know, you can't have a contract in force where a contract means exactly what the dictator says it does, nothing more. Uh, well, maybe that's not a good idea. You're starting to see a little awareness of this more than you used to, uh, but not nearly enough uh, from my perspective. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, Motorola had been uh, my first phone that I purchased in the, in the 2000s, a d dumb phone. And then my first smartphone happened to be, I think it was OnePlus, which was a Chinese uh, phone. And I grew up not far from Schaumburg uh, in Illinois, and I would go on occasion to Schaumburg. So um, interesting what you uh, mentioned. And maybe to get your thoughts as well, you mentioned U.S. administrations and the Biden administration uh, seems to be the most captured and and. Uh, penetrated uh you know there's talk now of, of canada and and in trudeau uh and you know latin america as well uh, honduras just flipped from taiwan to uh china um and china is making many inroads in latin america and then we've got the issues with hunter biden and you know the, the biden family's dealings in, in in china and just what, what's your overall feel on the current u.s administration which it, it doesn't seem to be it, it seems like it's like we have uh uh, like a foreign puppet in in in, in place. Um, there's a couple of things. It's uh, certainly seems schizophrenic in its uh, China policy. Sometimes it will uh, do some good things and kind of crack down, for example, on semiconductor exports to to the PRC. Um, you'll even have the president say America will defend Taiwan, and then almost immediately it does something else. You know, the president's statements will be walked back by his staff, uh, so you don't quite know. What's going on? Uh, and as, as I've noted, you uh, so you choke off semiconductor uh, exports or at least reduce them. And then 
America's uh, lets Chinese companies start listing on on American exchanges again after threatening to delist them. And it's, it's schizophrenic. You don't quite know what the policy is. In fact, you don't. But you did mention this idea of um, uh, it's effectively elite capture, but something worse, worse than that. And when you can get into an administration, a large number of people who have in the past, recent past, have done business with Chinese communist entities. Um, you know, the idea is, well, we're just helping them navigate the American market, the American government, etc. Well, you've worked as their proxies. And you go down that list of people who have those financial connections with the PRC. Uh, and it's got to cause some concern. You know, just a, a lot, a lot of concern. Um, just imagine if it was otherwise. Suppose we had, you know, say, fifty people in the upper rungs of the Chinese Communist Party uh, who had been taking American money uh, as consultants, etc. You, you would well. One, we'd be giving, patting ourselves on the back, uh, and you've really got to to wonder and be concerned. It's and you know, the. Chinese Communist Party could always always count in the past on its friends calling up Capitol Hill, calling up the White House and demanding that uh, something that China didn't like not be done or be stopped. And there's a, a famous video from just a few years, a couple of years ago, of a Chinese professor connected with the Chinese Communist Party uh, boasting about this. And he expressed his puzzlement that once Mr. Trump came in, they didn't know they couldn't do that. and. He was suggesting, of course, that now the good days were back uh, once the Biden administration took over. But this has been a, a sort of a bipartisan achievement uh, to do China's bidding, uh, to my way of thinking, until the Trump administration came. Uh, but even in the Trump administration, you had people who were fiercely pushing China's uh, interests. And I would cite, it was often believed, the, the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, uh, been with Goldman Sachs. You know, he was like the the other side, um, fighting against the people, the Trump's Trump advisors who wanted to get tough on China. You, so you have the Wall Street class, the business class, uh, that's applying counter pressure. And this was in the Trump administration. In the other administrations, it's even it's more. Uh, there really hasn't been uh, anyone suggesting get tough on tough on China. Uh, but that back to that point of. Um, people having done business for Chinese entities, um, that this administration, I think, is by far the uh, the most heavily seriously compromised um, on that. And you now, in even the president himself, you know, it, you know, even if you you know don't want to think the worst, um, but there, there simply is too much evidence that you, you don't have to be very seriously concerned, and it doesn't have to be say outright whizlings, you know, people who are effectively agents, but people who uh, just can sort of tip the scale a little bit. Uh, they sort of, you know, they don't get too tough on China. They can understand China's position, et cetera. It's almost a, a very subtle kind of influence. Um, but it is something that we've really got to worry about. Uh, and, you know, I've seen this over the years. And I think we all have. You would even see it in the military, uh, unfortunately, until fairly recently. Uh, whereas if, where if you had said, uh, that China is an enemy, we have to get ready for it. You could get all sorts of trouble uh, from the, uh, the 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 upper ranks, and um, and even the you'd find that the courtier class of officers who want to get to the upper ranks 
uh, they would go with it as well. China's not an enemy, not a threat. We can't say this. They'll think we're containing them. How dare you say that? Uh, and we've woken up, I think, by and large. But this was the case until about 2017, uh, at least. And that was the U.S. military. I mean, when, when you have a commandant of the Marine Corps going to visit the Chinese Marine Corps in 2008 and giving them a pep talk, uh, telling them to master their profession, uh, you know that something was wrong uh, when it came and rec- came to recognizing the threats that we were facing. And speaking of military, let's uh, switch uh, towards the uh, a bit more towards the kinetic then. And you t- uh, again in your book, you touch on chemical uh, warfare, and um, what caught my eye as well, of course, was the biological COVID nineteen. Uh, and I had been the first in January twenty twenty to interview the author of the Bioweapons uh, Act signed into law in 1989, Dr. Francis Boyle. In fact, I had just uh, not long ago, uh, a German film company financed by the EU asked uh, to use permission of that interview in in the documentary that they're uh, making. making. And his thesis back in January 2020, Dr. Boyle, was that uh, COVID was an offensive offensive, uh, biological warfare uh, weapon. And so you you touch on that. And then uh, on top of that, the thing that's freaked me out the the most the past couple of years has been something you also mentioned, which is the population control system or social credit system, which I view as the end goal of the whole biological warfare. I had Stephen Mosher on of the the head of the Population Research Institute. He was one of the first uh, experts let into China, like in the 1970s. And he said that the goal of this biological war was to bring in this population control system. And um, you know, we're seeing that I'm banned from PayPal, for example. I'm banned from Patreon. We're having people in the West now. Uh, you mentioned in your book, you know, Canada uh, and elsewhere. People in Brazil, people who protested Bolsonaro's laws had their bank accounts closed. So now we're seeing this come to the West. And so your thoughts on, on COVID and the population control system? Well, the effort to control is certainly there. And it's something I think that jumped out to a lot of people uh, when the, the virus hit. Uh, and you could see it being used opportunistically by, I think, people who did want to uh, control us. Uh, so I, you know, I agree with you there. The uh, Stephen Mosher is very good, by the way. Uh, so it, uh, you know, I would always pay attention to what he says. Um, but the the COVID uh, virus, uh, to me, you know, you can argue, one can debate where it came from. I, I, you know, sort of common sense says you'd at least want to look in the uh, the Wuhan, uh, the, the the Wuhan laboratory, uh, if a dangerous virus breaks out there. Um, so it was always very interesting how people uh, just refused to look there. Sort of obvious if you see a giraffe walking down the street, you might want to uh, go look at the zoo, see if that's where it came from. Um, but you saw, and this was really something that was so just unbelievable to me. Um, once it when it did hit, you had efforts to rein in, not rein in, just take away America's freedoms, American freedoms uh, that I had taken for granted. I never thought Americans would roll over uh, and have that happen. And you saw how this further played out with the stay-at-home orders, you know, the virus passports, with the vaccine passports, really an apartheid system uh, that was put in place to intimidate, to pressure people, get them to conform. And effectively to to think the way that whatever that ruling class or that uh, sort of 
gang of busybodies who found themselves with a lot of authority uh, the way they wanted. And you, th there's stuff that that happens that you know you 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 would have seen in a movie, um, say a decade ago, and you'd have said, "Oh, it's a good movie," but it never happened. Uh, but say that population control uh, effort, and that it's, uh, by that I'm not talking about to bring the numbers down of uh, people, but I think there are people who do want to do that. You know, you do get these, uh, you know, these people uh, who who've always been you know pushing that. But it's more to get people to conform, to go along with what uh, you know what they're told by a sort of an elite class or self-anointed elite class uh, who thinks they have everything figured out. And we've seen utopians before. It's just a another version of the Khmer Rouge here. Uh, but so, so that it really was something troubling. And you saw we used to think, well, only the Chinese do that. Um, you know, where people or the old Eastern Bloc, where people just keep their keep their head, eyes closed, keep their head down, stay out of trouble, don't attract attention, uh, just sort of live your life. You know, you at least be alive was the idea, um, and that's you get a sort of had something akin to that in parts of the U.S. after the uh, the virus uh, hit and these uh, control measures, which have, of course proven uh, to be less than than uh, efficacious. Canada as well was was boy that was looked like something out of China, uh, and you know in the U.S. you had to pick your pick your spots and you could find things out of China, but we didn't uh, get quite as bad as them. Uh, but if you want to see what the uh, the future could look look like in terms of the restrictions on what you're allowed to do, what you're allowed to think, and the punishments you receive if you uh, transgress, uh, just look at the the COVID lockdowns in China. Shanghai or any of their their cities, and how those were enforced ruthlessly, uh, and the the effort really isn't all about control. It's I wish Eric Blair, George Orwell was still alive, uh, and some others because this is nothing new. You know, we've seen all this before, but the people who want to do this, uh, I think, have seen see they have an opening or trying to run with it. Uh, I think we've got some breathing space now, and we'll see if uh, we can recover uh, recover our senses. Um, you, you really knew that when the state of Texas um, had sort of agreed to stay at home orders and closed the churches and kept the liquor stores and strip joints open, you knew we had pretty much gone completely insane. Uh, if Texans were doing it, uh, you really started to worry. Yeah, and it's impressive how far even here in Mexico they uh, attempted to do this. I mean, they were uh, in Mexico City, they attempted to make mandatory the QR codes to enter businesses and after because mexico city i'm 25 million people after a week no one was paying attention and the the, the mayor said okay just kidding we're going to drop the qr codes but even in some states here they were talking about uh taking away you know pensions and social welfare welfare for people who would not get vaccinated and do the vaccine passports and and so on and so forth and so um and then maybe you know to move to the military to the indo Pacific region, 60 Minutes just put out a report this week, uh, and they cited an expert who said China is outbuilding many of the Western navies combined um, by investing heavily in defense industrial infrastructure. China's navy now builds warships more quickly than the U.S. You touch on this stuff in your book uh, as well. We're also seeing uh, you know, the, the formation of the Quad, uh, AUKUS, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, South Korea is even discussing obtaining nuclear weapons now. Japan is bolstering mm -hmm. uh, mightily its capabilities. Philippines seems to have switched now 
to the U.S. side. Uh, and so your further thoughts on the Indo-Pacific uh, and Taiwan. Um, it used to be not all that long ago, people used to laugh about the Chinese military. Uh, they used to joke about the if they were to attack Taiwan, it would be a million men swim. The idea being they couldn't get across the strait. And they just uh, would uh, belittle, look down on Chinese military capabilities. And 20 years ago, it wasn't much. Uh, but in the last 20 years, they have uh, undergone the fastest military buildup in history. And some areas they have surpassed us. Uh, they could, uh, if they choose their spots and let's say attack in the right way, that for them, uh, they could just might defeat us in in certain scenarios. Uh, so it is a formidable force, and it was treated with condescension by too many people who should have known better. It said nothing to worry about. Oh, if the Chinese ever get you know aircraft carriers, ever get these capabilities. It'll be decades. You know, they're they're just not smart enough to figure this stuff out, uh, and they don't. Or, you know, or you would hear, well, they don't want this. They don't want this capability. They're just interested in business and keeping the regime in place. And this thinking goes back to this psychological warfare that I, that I talked about. Is if you can get your opponent to think you're not a threat while you are building up fiercely, uh, you're doing pretty well if you can get his business class. And financial classes to just pour convertible currency, uh, to pour investment into your country that you can use for both uh, civil and military purposes. And China doesn't make a distinction. They see them as uh, the same thing. If you can get your enemy to do that, well, how much better could it get? And where we are today is where you're seeing um, the U.S. military, but also 60 Minutes um, crying out loud is finally saying there's a problem. We're, we're at a position where the Chinese are militarily in a position to cause us no end of trouble, and they're getting better and better. You know, we still have a cards to play, and we've got a powerful military, but we really have a rival now, and they they're good on all all fronts. Uh, Navy, Air Force, and their ground forces have gotten better. Uh, they've they understand where their weaknesses are, and they're trying to address those. Uh, and they are building stuff a lot faster than we are. And you mentioned naval ships. Um, over the last decade, the rough figure was about five to one. Uh, so for every ship we were putting in the water, they were putting five. And I would note they've built three large amphibious ships over about the last year and a half. And whereas with us, it takes us a few years just to build one. And apparently for all the money in the world, just cost billions. Uh, China doesn't have a defense budget problem. Uh, so they have become a, a sort of a fierce competitor. Not, a competitor is the wrong word. They're an enemy, and they are a fierce rival to us. That could really hurt us. There's no country in Asia or even combination of countries that by themselves could take on the Chinese, <clears throat> and it's just getting uh, worse and worse. Um, the As you pointed out, though, that this has had an effect that <clears throat> sort of worked to our, our advantage a little bit is that it's driven – when the Japanese to wake up to the need to actually have a defense, uh, which they didn't really have one. So it's woken up the Japanese, the South Koreans uh, have always had a decent military, but even they are thinking of doing uh, more. You mentioned nuclear weapons. I'm sure they're seriously considering it. But also the new South Korean president has uh, sort of mended ties with the Japanese. Uh, and I think the Chinese have something to uh, uh, deserve some credit for that. Uh, Australia as well has woken up 
they're trying to, to beef up their defenses, and you're getting these uh, informal alliances, or, uh, mostly informal, say, between the Americans, the Japanese, the Indians, the Australians, uh, the so-called AUKUS deal, where the Americans, the British, and the Australians are going to make nuclear submarines together, or are going to get the Australians nuclear subs, but there's an awful lot of technology sharing and development outside the submarine field that uh, the AUKUS deal involves. Japan wants in on it. So the free nations have, um, have sort of woken up to the threat, and that is a good thing. And you mentioned the Philippines shifting uh, more towards the U.S. now that Duterte is gone, but the Philippines is always uh, mercurial and could shift back. But nonetheless, you know, a few years ago, it would have been unthinkable that the Philippines would actually um, move closer to the U.S., but now also now that they feel like they have some backing, uh, there's talk of joint patrols in the South China Sea uh, or in Filipino waters uh, with the Americans and the Japanese and maybe the Australians. And so for the Chinese Coast Guard Navy to bully uh, the Philippine uh, military and Coast Guard uh, is one thing to do it when the Americans and the Japanese and the Australians are around is another. Uh, so we are, though, in a in something of a fix that didn't have to happen. Uh, if we had maintained our edge, uh, we could have um, avoided this. Uh, but we are in a, a serious spot. And as I said, when 60 Minutes has a show pointing out that the U.S. Navy is is weak or, or is uh, weaker weaker than it ought to be, uh, that you know there's a problem. And just one more just sort of anecdote. Now, with the South China Sea gets a lot of attention, and you know, the American sails aircraft carriers through it. Uh, they sail ships through it. And the idea being to show we can go wherever we want. Um, well, yes, maybe, but it, it's kind of like in the old days before Rudy Giuliani cleaned up Times Square. You remember NYPD used to move, send a patrol car through. And the, the criminals would kind of clear out. And then once the car was gone, they'd close back up. And you knew who controlled Times Square. Um, it was these uh, criminals. And then we're a little bit like that in the South China Sea now. And yes, we can send whatever we want through there, but it tends to get escorted uh, by the Chinese, even if they don't interfere. And when we do send a ship, the rough figure is if China wants, they can uh, match us a 10 to 1. They can put 10 ships out there for every one we do. They could probably do more, actually. Uh, that's how bad the, the overmatch is. And so imagine you're an American destroyer skipper, and you've got, uh, say, a couple dozen anti-ship missiles coming at you at supersonic speeds, and you've got about, say, 20 seconds to respond. What do you do? Um, you can see the problem, uh, that our, our quality and our greatness, of course, so it only takes you so far, and we've... Um, I think we really were complacent. And when I say we, it wasn't all of us, but it was our military's ruling class, our civilian leaders as well, and all, all aided and abetted by Wall Street and the financial class. So we do face a real military threat out here, uh, not just in the Pacific, but China's objectives are not regional, they're global. And their work in outer space, their work with hypersonic weapons, uh, that can be launched from way up there um, shows they are they're, they're looking at all domains. They're looking at all parts of the the battlefield, uh, and the idea is to put your opponent in a position where he can't move. Uh, and that's the to that's that's the ideal. You know, it's a lot easier than having to fight fight him for whatever you want. 
But I say, if you can get him in a position for militarily, he can't move at a reasonable cost. And then psycho, and at the same time, beat him down psychologically uh, so that he even feels that resistance is futile. Uh, that that's the, the way you fight a war. And the Chinese view of war is very different than, than our, our view of it. And that brings us then to the million dollar question. You also touch uh, on this in, in the book. Again, we, we can't get ev- to everything. You got chapters on, as you mentioned, cyber um, issues, hacking uh, uh, and, and much more. But uh, I've had on a number of, well, we're hearing um, mili- American military generals talking about throwing out these years, you know, 2025. Most uh, recently, uh, I think some U- U.S. Uh, military or Navy commander talked about you know, as a flashpoint for war with uh, China or China taking Taiwan, which would lead to war with uh, China. I've had other experts on talk about this time period that we're in, this decade, 2020 to 2030, and then especially from 2025 to 2030, I've heard uh, some guests say, you know, 2027, 2028. So we're approaching this danger zone where the Chinese might view this is the weak point of the U.S. and this is their best time to uh, uh, attack. And and then as well, my question, so y- your thoughts on actual war with china and then you know would i mean we are in a world war three scenario almost and i've heard people say and i would see this uh, as uh, viable as well possible that the american homeland would be hit it wouldn't be like uh you know the world wars that because you know chinese and russians now have hypersonics uh nuclear capable and so we could see actually see things coming home like in the vein of pearl harbor but even much worse and so any more thoughts you have on you know, the the World War Three scenario, or or where things could go in terms of military conflict. Sure, it um, was a little bit like um, predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl. Uh, everybody's got a scenario, and I'd say there's at least a dozen very good ones that are plausible uh, that could happen. And everything you've mentioned is possible. Uh, it's but the the point is, there's a dozen of them. Uh, so you really want to be prepared for to deal with any of them, and better said to avoid all of them. Uh, but there are real possibilities of a war breaking out, and I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. Um, you know, China would, of course, prefer to get what it wants without fighting. Uh, you know, who wouldn't? And that includes getting Taiwan without fighting, but also getting the Americans, the and the free nations, to to back down and just sort of acquiesce to Chinese domination. Um, they prefer that. Yeah, and so that is, and that's you know, my book is trying to get across that there is this systematic effort to attack us on a number of fronts: biological, chemical, financial, economic, uh, psychological, and to use proxies, use Americans to, to do their work, um, and and the media, education, etc. Um, and if you do that, you're wearing down your enemy. You're putting him in this state from which he's so confused and just you know, fighting himself that he can't resist. And his military you know, is uh, similarly uh, declines as well. So that's you know, that is the the strategy that we've been watching for 20, 30 years. We've been the victims of it. But there is the question of what if a fight happens, um, and and what about Taiwan? Uh, so and so here's what I would say. And this is it's me um, predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl. And, and every year it is the Washington football team. I predict. So. Uh, discount whatever I say by that, but the uh, you know I think the the way that that I see it is that the China sees Taiwan as the the initial step, the initial thing to get, and they would just look at that as as a starting start point. 
you know, once you get Taiwan. And the reasons for that is that if you take Taiwan, you, the, militarily, it's, it's hugely advantageous uh, because you can, you have broken the so-called first island chain, this chain of islands from Japan to Taiwan to the Philippines down to Malaysia that effectively hems in the People's Liberation Army. China's military cannot move easily into the Pacific. And if you look at a map, it becomes clear. And if you turn the map around so you're looking at it from the Chinese mainland, you really see how this island chain blocks you. Um, Taiwan is right in the middle of it. So seize it and you, you've, you've got a lodgment. You have broken the first island chain. Think of a castle wall, say the walls of Byzantium, Constantinople, when they got breached. Once that happened, you know, it, the, the deluge came. And that's effectively what would happen if uh, Taiwan fell. Uh, and from there, the Chinese military would step by step. It would be able to move north and surround Japan, isolate Japan, intimidate them, uh, cut off their trade if they needed to. And that will get Japan to acquiesce, go down to the south, and you've isolated Australia. Um, additionally, the Americans would have a very hard time defending from uh, farther back. So the Americans would have to pull back maybe as far as Hawaii and maybe eventually the, the West Coast. Uh, and Chinese domination of the Central Pacific would be much easier to achieve uh, if you you hold um, Taiwan. And that's just militarily. But think of the political and the psychological effect of Taiwan going under, or come, going under Chinese control, is you have um, demonstrated that uh, the U.S. military could not save 23 million free people on Taiwan. U.S. financial and economic pressure couldn't do it. U.S. nuclear weapons couldn't do it. Uh, that would be a, something of a humiliation for the Americans, to put it mildly. And no country on earth would uh, would count on American promises of protection after that. I think you'd find Asia very quickly would turn red as every country, except maybe Japan and Australia, would try to cut the best deal it could uh, with China. So think of, as you think, say it's not just the military advantage of taking Taiwan. It's the psychological, political significance of it and the blow to U.S. prestige. Uh, now, how would you do it? Well, there's different ways. And, China, and there's a couple of things to watch for, as I see it. And that is there's an election coming up in Taiwan in early 2024 for president. Uh, if a what effectively is a pro-China uh, candidate wins, say, from the from the KMT party, uh, that China would like that because there is a pretty good chance that they could um, sort of move Taiwan towards China. Uh, and that is something that doesn't get the attention it deserves, but domestic politics uh, in Taiwan really needs some attention. And China has tried in the past, the recent past, to get their candidates uh, elected, and they've come pretty close. And they've got a fair chance this time around. Uh, and I say that's different from the military imbalance or the military aspect, but the political one. And uh, there's some real concern that the KMT would, uh, if it took over, undermine Taiwan's uh, willingness to defend and actually move the country closer to um, to China. Uh, even if most people in Taiwan don't really want to be controlled by the Chinese communists, by Chinese mainlanders, uh, they don't want that. And that is a majority. But Nonetheless, if a sort of an aggressive, uh, ruthless uh, leadership takes over a country, they can often move it where most people don't want to go. 
But suppose, so so, the, so watch for that election early 2024. And depending on how that goes, I, I think it's going to get very interesting very quickly if uh, the, the DPP, sort of the, the country, the, the, the party uh, that is going, doesn't want any dealings, uh, doesn't want any political deals with China. Um, I wouldn't call them a pro-independence party. They just want a country that, that they want to keep things going where Taiwan is free. Uh, it is a free democracy now, and they want to keep that. Um, so if they win, uh, then I think it's going to get rough. And China would, I think, see themselves as having the capability to successfully attack Taiwan and to bring it to heel, um, either uh, just through an all-out, well, an all-out uh, attack, uh, or even just isolating the country and um, strangling it. Uh, that that is likely. To, I think that is something we really have to be careful. We have to watch for, not just watch for, be ready to deal with it, and ideally prevent it from happening before it does. Uh, but China also pays attention to an administration, to who's in the White House. Um, Trump and his people scared them. On this side, there's nobody that scares them. And I'm afraid that they may see the current administration as distracted, as weak, as people that they know, for, many of them people they know very well from their past dealings with them. And they're not intimidated by them. And my guess is that China thinks if it moves fast enough, hard enough, uh, and issues a warning to the White House, stand clear, or it's nuclear war, that you just might get an administ this administration to back off and just say, well, there's nothing we can do, and there'd be lots of hand-wringing and tut-tutting. Uh, but that may be a scenario that it's a scenario that I think is realistic and that I'm uh, concerned uh, could happen. Uh, but, you know, you have to make sure that China understands the cost-benefit analysis or does that uh, analysis and realizes that they are going to lose a lot. And the Chinese leadership in particular, um, because they really don't give two hoots about their citizens, uh, but it's their own personal well-being uh, and their money and uh, New York real estate and their relatives with green cards. Um, if you can make it uh, so they're the ones who will actually suffer, that might that would be helpful. Um, but in terms of a military fight, I think China thinks it has the, uh, the capabilities uh, to go after Taiwan and take it uh, if the need to, and to keep the Americans at bay. And even I think they also think they can uh, get the Japanese to stand clear as well. Uh, so you know it's unfortunate that when you know, these kind of regimes. When they see uh, strength, when they, they see somebody's going to hurt them, they tend to back off. Just the, and it's the dynamic of the playground where the bully, uh, he when he thinks he has the advantages, he, he runs with it. Uh, when somebody stands up and you know it's clear that he's going to punch him in the nose and finish him off, then suddenly they get nicer. Uh, but you know we have to show that we're willing to do that. So that's how I would see it playing out. I think this decade is the one that. Uh, we really need to be very careful about. Uh, and, you know, it's not all that complicated what we need to do. It's not just militarily be ready, and we do need to do some work there quickly, uh, but also to get our financial house in order, our economic house in order, wean ourselves, not wean ourselves, just go cold turkey uh, from this dependence on the China market, uh, which also is, as you has put it's put us in a lot of danger economically, where so many of our key materials and uh, things, you know, are made in in China. Um, medicine is one thing, pharmaceuticals, where uh, 
uh, that dependency it was brought to starkly uh, brought to light during the the virus attack when China even threatened to cut off uh, our access to pharmaceuticals and let us drown in a sea of COVID. So we, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of that dependency. But we got to get off of, as I say, that um, addiction to the China market, to making things in China, uh, thinking we just have to be there. If we don't, we reduce our prospects of success uh, considerably, to my way of thinking. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I think I read this morning that a, a past uh, Taiwanese prime minister will be visiting the Chinese mainland, which they say is unprecedented or hasn't happened in a long time. So that's kind of a, another, as you mentioned, egg in, in, in China's favor. And I've had a uh, past guest uh, posit that if the dragon bear, Russia, China, Eurasia were to actually, you know, if, if we did go to World War Three and they were to attack North America, their best vector or, or point would be through the Pacific uh, you know, hitting the west coast of uh, North uh, America, so that's interesting as well. Again, we can't get to everything. Uh, Belt and Road, you talk about that, or you call it the bribery and repression repression uh, initiative. Uh, my next podcast guest will be the economic hitman John Perkins, whose book also talks about that. So maybe I'll get his thoughts there. People can get your book. You talk about as well um, the de-dollarization aspects, uh, yuan, and um you know any any final thought for us you know what else do we do and um uh, you know last word from you sure it you know the, the i try to get this out that the game's not over um you know but we are in a, a very difficult spot and we face enemies that could really hurt us and this hasn't happened in our lifetimes uh, where we face this kind of arrival and you know you do see as you've mentioned the, the russians getting in on it uh, the Iranians, North Korea. This, unfortunately, it's this uh, collection of uh, villains. Uh, you, know, and, you know, these scary countries that want to destroy us. And we've seen all this before. You know, imagine the people in Krakow in the 13th century, with the Mongols showing up at the gates. They they understood it. Um, but we've so we've seen it before. But we do have the ability to recover uh, and recover very quickly. But we, it's, uh, we're going to have to get our uh, business class, our financial class, Wall Street, uh, to realize what country's name is put is on the cover of their passports. Uh, and that's going to take some coercion, I think, from Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill is going to have to not return the phone calls of the donor class that's pestering them to, to be nicer to China. Uh, and our military is going to have to realize that its purpose in, in life is to uh, is to fight and win wars. It is not about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whatever that is. Uh, in fact, the militaries have been the only, uh, probably one of the best organizations in the U.S. when it comes to uh, sort of meritocracy and this absolute color blindness and class blindness as well. Uh, we need to recognize that. And I hope we get some uh, commanders who whose thing is war fighting and not um, getting their next promotion. So we do have a good, we've got a good hand to play, but we've got to realize we're in trouble and we could lose uh, and get to work uh, fast. And so, um, yeah, I, how's this going to play out? I really don't know. You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, yeah, we'll always pull through. Um, but it's so it's it's serious now. And I, and I said, I hope we uh, take advantage of the chance that we've now got uh, to sort of show what America can do. Uh, there's a lot of people counting on us. So we'll see how this goes. I, I think that's the correct answer that uh, you don't know. N nobody knows. Uh, and so uh, we just have to, as you said, steer the ship 
uh, correctly realize uh, the danger. And I'll include all of your links in the description. Uh, you're on Twitter. Your book uh, is available. Will be available. Uh, people can pre-order now from uh, Regnery or Amazon. So if you want to let us know where's the best place to find you uh, online or any other projects. Oh yeah, it, um, there's a GN at excuse me, yeah GN at GrantNewsham.com, which links to uh, everything that I've written in recent times. And that's a pretty good place to to go. Um, and you know, you know, I have been writing a lot. I didn't start writing till I was older because I didn't think I had much to say. Uh, but I guess I got a few ideas. Um, and I don't forget, it's really written. Uh, I'd say for I, I don't want to use the regular people because everybody is regular people. But it's for people who are interested in foreign affairs but don't have time to live and breathe it. Um, and so I tried to write to explain what's the deal with China, what the threat is, what happens if we lose us, how if we lose, how they've been attacking us on a number of fronts we don't recognize as, as warfare. And I cover the kinetic part, the actual military part as well. And then I suggest uh, how we go about dealing with it. And that's what it's for, is so to try and help uh, people understand uh, the situation we're dealing with when it comes to the People's Republic of China. Uh, but my goodness, it was hard to write. I thought it'd be easy, but uh, it wasn't. Uh, I can imagine. And, and we, we only scratched like half of the book. And again, I highly recommend Colonel Newsham's uh, book, When China Attacks, a Warning to America. Links will be in the description. A handy manual on perhaps what is to come. Follow him on Twitter at uh, Newsham Grant. Uh, and again, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Sure. I appreciate the invi- the opportunity and the invitation. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.